0: Christians and Muslims live side by side in the United States, yet we know very little about each other's beliefs. What do Muslims believe and teach? Who was Muhammad? What is the Quran? What do Muslims think of the Bible? What do Muslims believe about Jesus? How is it different from what Christians believe? And how can we share our Christian faith with Muslims we meet in our communities? Join us today as we discuss how to respond and witness to Muslims. My guest today is Dr. Adam Francisco, professor of history at Concordia University in Irvine, California. This is Kay Meyer, president of Family Shield Ministries and your host for today's program. Thanks, Dr. Francisco, for being my guest today.
1: You're welcome. My pleasure.
0: Well, as we get started, maybe we could just uh, talk a little bit about the Muslim faith and what we need to do as Christians to grow in our understanding of what they believe and why it's so important that we learn how to respond and witness to them.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I was just thinking before we went on the air that in the forthcoming years and and decades, uh, Islam will be sort of a, not just grow in terms of its demographics and, and the institutions like mosques and Islamic educational institutions and so on, but Islam will increasingly become a, if you will, a conversation partner mm-hmm. uh, in not just religious discourse, but because Islam is also political and has a lot of legal strings attached, and the social movement, if you will. Um, Islam will be play a major role in our public discourse. So for, for Christians who are citizens of two kingdoms, on one hand we're citizens of God's kingdom, on the other hand we're citizens of the United States, uh, we need to be adept at uh, addressing the issues that Islam poses to us in the, the realm of, of of politics and law and and so on, but also need to be quite nimble in in our conversations with our Muslim neighbors and co-workers and friends.
0: You bet. That's changed a lot as I look back on my many years of being on radio. Um, so many more Muslims today in the United States, and I want to kind of focus today on what we share as Christians, um, but uh, how many Muslims are there in the world and then in the United States do you know
1: well the, the number it, it's it's that's tricky, especially when it comes to the United States, but across the globe somewhere between one point six and one point eight billion mm. and the the Pew Research Center, which does i think probably most people regard it as probably the premier uh, Center for surveys of demographic trends and so on. Uh, they just recently, I think in March, came out with a report that said, by the end of the century at the the latest, but before they've said by 2050, the global Muslim population will uh, reach at least two billion, which will put it if if Christianity remains where it is today, which and that's and it's trending that way, uh, Islam will grow and will actually surpass in terms of you know representation numerical representation across the globe so it will be the largest religion at least that's the way things are looking right now um here in in, in a couple decades in terms of the muslim population in the united states we, this is a, again a real tricky thing cuz muslims aren't always forthcoming about their their allegiances for a variety of reasons um you know some are fearful that uh, they'll be put on a list or that the fbi will begin uh, spying on them and so on and so forth. So it's kind of understandable they may not be all that forthcoming or eager to volunteer um information on what they think religiously and otherwise. But um the surveys that have been done have said anywhere from there are anywhere from 3.3 billion to 10 billion or 3.3 million to 10 million Muslims in America. Uh which is a a sur- obviously a minority. Mm-hmm. Um and, but it is, it's a sizable minority, yes, and where you can really see, though, the, the growth and the, I guess, the, um, the permanence of Islam now in America and in the, the increase in the number of Islamic institutions. So if you were to go back, oh, maybe two decades, there'd maybe be about 1,000 mosques in America, maybe even a little less, and today there are over 3,000.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, really growing.
1: Yeah, and it, it probably by the end of this decade, there might be close to to four thousand. Some are predicting there are um, Islamic schools uh, that are popping up in some of the most peculiar places uh, in Indiana, for example, uh, not too far from South Bend, Indiana. There's an Islamic school, and you know, for 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 children, elementary school, and you find these uh, not just in again not just in cities, but in rural areas. Uh, there's a Islamic College, the first accredited Islamic college is oh. here in California in the Bay Area oh. um, and lots of uh, places that maybe don't seem like Islamic institutions but uh, but they are so they'll usually come under the title of like an Arab cultural center or something like that, but they're very much they very much cater to an Islamic clientele
0: so Muslims are the people, and Islam is the religion. Uh, let's talk a little bit about their history
1: okay. Well, uh, Islam began uh, historically in the early 7th century. Uh, and it, the story all revolves around this man named Muhammad, who, who was born in the city of Mecca, which is on the western side of what we call Saudi Arabia today. And early on, he was sort of a you know, almost a nobody. You know, you know, he didn't really hit the historical map until he's about 40 years of age in 610 A.D., when he was sitting in a cave, the, the Muslim sources tell us, pondering the big questions in life, you know, what's the true God? Is there What should I believe? Is there a, re, a true religion?" Uh, and so on. And the biographical tradition says that, as he's pondering these questions, he began to feel a presence in the cave. One source says that he was actually physically pressed to the floor of the cave, and he, he hears a voice. And the voice tells him he's to begin uh, reciting or proclaiming things. And he doesn't really know what that means. And there's an interesting story about how he goes back and forth with this voice and, on asking what he should recite. And eventually, though, the voice comes back and tells him exactly what he's to proclaim. And it's found in chapter 96, verses 1 through 5 in the Quran. And this is just a summary of it. But it says, uh, you're to proclaim that, that God has made everything and that he has taught men uh, by the pen. Uh, and from uh, the way Muhammad grew to understand that that particular event is that the voice was coming from an angel named Gabriel or Jabril in Arabic and it Jabril had brought down words from Allah that's the, the name if you will for God in, in Arabic uh, brought down words to Muhammad uh, to speak on behalf of Allah and so, from 610 to 632, 22 years or so, uh, until Muhammad dies, he continuously hears words or receives words brought down from from Gabriel and will proclaim them to the Arabs, uh, starting first in Mecca and then throughout the entire peninsula there in Saudi Arabia. And when he dies in 632, a big question emerges for the the Muslim community, and you could described the Arabian Peninsula at that time as the first Muslim or Islamic state. And the question was, uh, who can replace Muhammad? Because Muhammad had taught over the course of his time as a so-called prophet that he was the last of this long string oh. of prophets mm-hmm. that first began with Adam, went through Abraham, uh, through even Jesus, and culminates in Muhammad. And so he um, When the question is raised, who replaces Muhammad, one party uh, says nobody can replace Muhammad in the sense that we're expecting another prophet who can fill those sorts of shoes, and that, that party became known as the Sunni party. And what they basically taught was after Muhammad's death, the way forward for Islam was simply to copy the example that Muhammad had established, not to alter it or add to it, but just simply to copy it, uh, to, you know, to retain the tradition as it was established by Muhammad. The other party, which was a minor party and, and makes up, even to this day, only about 15% at most of the Muslim world, is called the Shia or the Shiite party. And they, they argue that the successor to Muhammad should be somebody who's related to Muhammad by blood, because as Islam expands... And Muhammad gave the order to the Islamic State that they are to always be working at expanding the reach of Islam. Uh, The Shiite said, we need somebody in a position of leadership because we'll, we'll have new questions posed to us as we expand into different cultures. The Shiite said the best person for that is somebody who shares in the bloodline of Muhammad because they will be able to discern allah 's will in new and unprecedented circumstances, and that that 's the that um, question and the way those two parties answered the question led to the first rift in islam and it 's still playing still out there, th- yeah. today um, and so that's that 's the seventh century and you could say in many ways the rest is history from the seventh century up until World War one uh, Islamic history or Islam continued to expand. Its reach, not just religiously, but mostly politically and legally, such that uh, Islamic empires are born in the aftermath of Muhammad's death. Uh, the last great Islamic empire uh, was the Ottoman Empire. Uh, they they emerged in the, the early 1300s and expanded Islam into southeastern Europe. Uh, by the time of the Protestant Reformation, they were pushing into Central Europe. Uh, you know the great reformer martin luther around 1529 said that the turks and by that he means muslims are now at our very doorstep and they they continue to bang on the eastern door of europe for for decades if and centuries to come until they start to decline in the 17th century uh, starting you can pinpoint it to september 11th of 1683 mm. and their decline was slow um, but by World War One, when the Ottoman Empire um, allies himself with Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that's basically the end of it. Uh, they come out as the losers of World War One, and in the aftermath, the, M- the Islamic Empire, or the Islamic Empires of old, are uh, no longer or cease to exist. And so we're living in a period... Um, with reference to Islam, after World War I. And what happens is, to understand today, you really have to kind of understand the Middle East after World War I. When the, empire, the Ottoman Empire and other Islamic empires ceased to exist, and in the wake of the defeat of the Ottomans in World War I, what you see happening in the Muslim-majority world is that their land is divided up into modern nation-states. So these places we hear about today, like Syria and Lebanon and you know Iraq and you know, Morocco, Algeria, and, and all these nation states that we've known as nation states for decades, they didn't exist before World War One. Uh, they came about and were established after World War One, primarily by uh, Western powers, in particular Britain and France. And as these nation states developed, uh, they were, as Britain and France supervised their development, they ensured that they developed in a direction that made them politically more like European nation-states legally as well and and economically. And the real radical stuff that you were seeing that's Mm -hmm. been around for some time that's coming out of the Middle East is largely a response to that Western uh, intervention in the region. Okay. That's uh, 1,400 years of history in about five minutes. Yeah, that's
0: good, <laughs> and we're halfway through the program. Um, I'm going to make a few announcements, and then we'll talk a little bit more about m- the Muslims, and also during the second half we want to talk about how we respond, especially to those that we meet in our own communities. Sounds good. All right. Today Family Shield is giving away the booklet, Reasons to Believe. To request it, call the Family Shield Response Center, one or email us at witnesstofamily at gmail.com. We want to welcome our 54th radio station, KAGR 92.1 FM in South Central Nebraska. They now carry Family Shield. We're glad you're listening. Welcome. Why not consider putting Family Shield Ministries into your will or estate? We can send complimentary brochures that explain numerous ways you can do this. Most people want to give the majority of their estate to their family, but many also like to put a favorite nonprofit ministry into their estate to receive a small percentage of it. Um, For more information, contact your lawyer or let us connect you to an LCMS Foundation counselor that specializes in estate planning. If you're a Thrivent Financial member, you can designate your Thrivent Choice dollars to support Family Shield Ministries. Go to the Thrivent website www.thrivent.com/thriventchoice or call them 1-800-847-4836. We love to hear from our radio listeners. You can send a note telling us how the program topics and our guests have equipped you and helped you grow in faith. Send notes and your gifts to Family Shield Ministries, P.O. Box 230015, St. Louis, Missouri 63123. Now I want to go back to our program on Responding and Witnessing to Muslims. My guest is Dr. Adam Francisco. Uh, We were learning a little bit uh, about the history of uh, Islam and um, a little bit about Muhammad. Um, Out of his... Writings and the visions of the a, uh, angel Gabriel—was uh, that where the Quran came from, um, Adam?
1: Yes, it's it's um, an interesting history because we don't have a lot. We don't have the sort of material that historians uh, need to to speak with any degree of certainty on how the Quran was composed. But in classic Muslim, the classic Muslim understanding of things, the view is that. Everything that Muhammad received from the angel Gabriel, and that he spoke as a, a prophet of Allah, uh, was eventually, after his death, about it took about twenty years, but eventually it was written down by his successors. And the claim is that when it was written down, it was done from mostly from memory. But the Arabs who are you know have a long and proud tradition of being you know, poets, uh, they were because of that able to. Keep everything Muhammad said intact in their memory perfectly. So what you what what's bele- what they believe is that what's in the Quran is a perfect uh, transcription of the the uh, sayings or the preaching of Muhammad. And ever since it was put down into a book in the middle of the seventh century, around 650 A.D. It's been copied perfectly over the centuries, so there's not a single copyist error or or problem with the Quran. Now, in addition to that, um, more traditional Muslims will, when they when they read the Quran today, they don't just believe that they're reading a accurate transcription of what Muhammad taught, but they believe that they're they're reading and they're hearing as they recite it, Allah speaking from all eternity. So. The phrase that will oftentimes be used is that the Quran is God's eternal speech, which is which is an interesting thing because what it means is the Quran does not, though there are some Muslims who would suggest that it, it must be, most Muslims don't believe the Quran needs to be studied contextually. Mm. So when you get um, some of the violent passages in the Quran, for example, um, the... At least traditionally, those don't need to be understood as a response to a particular historical event, but as um, commands to violence even to this very day. Now, to be sure, there are Muslims, and a lot of Muslims, who would would reject that. But at least traditionally speaking, that's not been the normal way uh, they approach the text.
0: Okay. Well, we have so many more things we could talk about, but our time's going to fly by. We want to talk a little bit about how we effectively share our faith in Christ with Muslims. And I guess maybe one place we could start is to understand what the Muslims think about the Bible and Jesus, because they do believe Jesus was a prophet, but they don't believe some of the things that we believe about Jesus are some of the things that God's Word says. Uh, Can we start from there and see how far we get? Okay, good.
1: That, that's a, an important question, because, I mean, not just with Muslims, but anybody, you know, you, you have to kind of figure out what they believe to begin with to kind of tailor how you're going to speak to them. right um, And in many ways, it's or in some ways, it's it's a good thing that Muslims at least have a healthy respect for a, a man and a prophet named Jesus. Uh, the Quran speaks quite a bit about Jesus. Uh, there's a whole chapter dedicated to... Uh, the Virgin Mary, and it explains how Jesus was born of a virgin, that as he grew up, he performed miracles, uh, that he was a prophet to the people of Israel. Uh, But then the Quran quickly parts ways with with any sort of similarity to Christianity when it talks about the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, Quran in in chapter 4 says that it's kind of an obscure passage that sort of just pops out of nowhere. It claims that the the Jews boast that they killed the Messiah Jesus, uh, they did not kill him, nor was he crucified. And the way Muslims have historically interpreted that passage is they've said that towards the end of Jesus' prophetic ministry, uh, he knew he was going to be arrested, and so he in anticipating that he's as he's sitting around his disciples. He asks one of them if they would take his place, uh, and, and Judas raises his hand. Judas's face is transformed such that he looks like Jesus, and Jesus is taken up into heaven. So in Islam, Jesus wasn't crucified, uh, but instead ascended into heaven, escaping death. And also in Islam, for Christians, it's important for us to understand that if Jesus wasn't crucified, that also means he did not rise from the dead.
0: Well, He did not die for our sins either, correct? Uh,
1: well, there's that minor detail. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's um, that's a I big mean, that's, issue. I I want to make sure our listeners that's understand. That's the issue, in that fact. That is the issue. Yes. Okay, so,
1: good. and I mean, there's two things going on here. One is, so he he wasn't crucified for our sins. He didn't rise for our justification. And so, when you when speaking with Muslims about Jesus, when communicating the gospel to them, you've got to be aware that one. They're not going to, if you tell them that Jesus died for their sins, their typical response is going to be, no, he didn't. He didn't die on a cross, mm. right? And also, their their basic understanding of Christianity, because Jesus didn't rise from the dead in their view of things, that means Christianity uh, is false. Mm. First Corinthians 15, in fact, tells us if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're the most pitiable of all people. So when you're speaking to a Muslim, it's a little different than speaking to your, your common American who's not a Christian, in that they have a certain a, a view of what, what Jesus actually did. So what does this mean for Muslim-Christian conversations? Well, so we typically want to approach the non-Christian by telling them that, that Jesus died for them. He died for their, their sins and for their justification. The Muslim will reject that. But a Muslim will have an alternate uh, explanation or an alternate story about how sins are forgiven. And their story is basically that Allah is so merciful, and each chapter, with the exception of one of the Quran, refers to, right in the first verse, and actually in the introduction to that chapter, as Allah, the merciful, and the just. And just last Friday, I took a group to observe a mosque here in Irvine, just to see to introduce them what Muslims do. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole sermon was about the forgiveness and the mercy of Allah, and the, the imam told them, you know, sort of classic Islamic religious doctrine, that Allah forgives sins, mm-hmm. and that the Muslim hope is in Allah's merciful nature that he will forgive their sins. But here's the clicker with, with Islam. A Muslim can never be sure right. that their sins uh, are forgiven by Allah. And so a uh, Muslim can use a lot of the same language that the Christian that Christians use—forgiveness uh, you know, and hope and mercy and 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 God's love and so on and so forth—but they mean something entirely different by it. And what this means for the the Muslim and their their disposition is they are never confident of their salvation. And I think, at least evangelistically speaking, that's the way in for the Christian, in that the Christian is confident mm-hmm. uh, that their forgiveness is an accomplished fact. It was accomplished on a hill just outside of Jerusalem uh, almost 2,000 years ago, and it's a done deal. Yeah. A Muslim ha- does not have that certainty. But like I said earlier, a Muslim rejects that that actual event of the crucifixion took place. So often what the you'll find in a conversation with a, a Muslim is not only can you have a good conversation about Jesus where you can use some of the same terms, and at least there's some kind of terminological common ground, but you'll find that you are you might be pushed into uh, what we could call an apologetic conversation uh-huh. pretty quickly. Defending the faith, right. You know, Borrowing from 1 Peter 3.15, the Christian will find that they will be asked to give a reason for the hope within uh-huh. them. Uh, in that conversation. So there's a great opportunity for the Christian to defend why we believe what we believe. Absolutely. Uh, and not from just sort of an emotional or an experiential standpoint, but also from a, a factual or a historical standpoint as well.
0: Right. Anything else that you think our listeners would like to know, especially as they uh, build a relationship with maybe a, a next door neighbor that's a Muslim or someone they work with uh, and how they share their faith effectively?
1: Yeah, I think about this almost every day, because uh, I'll admit, I Islam as a sort of worldview or an ideology is quite terrifying, in that it... it yeah, that doesn't mean Muslims are terrifying, but Islam does seek to, the Quran says, to dominate everything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, and you, you see that played out in the media. Uh, that does not absolve us of the, the obligation, if you will. It may I would say the privilege... Uh, to to speak the gospel to Muslims. And I would dare say that for your Christian audience, if they spend time with Muslims, and they're kind and courteous and, you know, humble uh, with them, as you should be with any person, uh, they'll find that Muslims are, uh, for the most part, just like any other American,
0: you
1: know, they have their religious peculiarities. They go to mosque on Friday and they have the different holidays and so on. But when it comes to their basic, you know, day in, day out things, they want the same things that most Americans want. They want uh, freedom, security. They want to have the opportunity to send their kids to the best schools and so on and so forth. And typically, socially speaking, they have a a, a pretty uh, conservative outlook on, on things of ethics, and when it comes to family life, very conservative. So you'll find that... Um, Some
0: commonalities there.
1: Yeah, socially speaking, there's a lot of good. similarities in what we want here for our children and for our life here, here in America. And you'll find that Muslims can be uh, really good friends, uh, very hospitable people. So don't be scared of Muslims.
0: <laughs> our time is up. My guest has been Dr. Adam Francisco. And uh, I would encourage all of our listeners to pray for a Muslim you know. That might be the best way to get started. Ask the Lord to give you the words and the opportunities to share your faith in Christ with them. Thank you so much for being my guest today. God bless all of our listeners. This is Kay Meyer with Family Shield.